Hello everyone we are back with another episode of Blitz Business today with me i have Alex from drover.ai in this episode we talked about Alex's journey from working in Hollywood to a tech startup understanding the micro mobility space in much greater depth uh, on how to build partnerships finding the right product market fit and when is the right time to start a startup i hope you will enjoy this podcast Hi Alex thank you so much for joining us over at Blitz Business it's a pleasure to have you a pleasure to be with you great so Alex tell me a little bit uh, about yourself and then we'll talk uh, the idea the motivation behind uh, drover.ai yeah sure uh well i've come from kind of a varied background uh, as is the case with with many entrepreneurs um mm-hmm. and i'm originally french and serbian uh raised in the south of france um and and then came to the states uh, for part of high school and then stayed here for college and then went back to europe uh, so i'm i'm kind of a a global nomad as i like to call myself uh, my my parents instilled in me a uh, kind of a love of of multiculturality and and mm-hmm. uh and an appreciation for different perspectives globally and that's really informed everything i've done in my life um and and just the way um i try to stay open to opportunities and um so i i settled in los angeles um partially because i was drawn to the entertainment industry so i uh i ended up um you know working in hollywood as an actor for uh, about a dozen years and and doing quite well for myself and that's why oh really oh, really yeah <laughs> Some, somewhat unique i i guess in this space but uh Uh, and you know again it was a fantastic experience uh you know talk about a a diverse kind of industry uh with people from everywhere coming to participate and and so it, it very much felt like uh like a, uh, the kind of village that i would gravitate towards and uh and then you know one thing led to the next and as life happens i was uh pulled into um a startup called drywired by um an old high school friend of mine who was looking for somebody to help him get it off the ground and and this was my first experience in a startup back in uh, 2012 and and so um i i joined the team and it was a nanotechnology company where where the focus was to license innovative uh, products that might be sitting on shelves of uh, private or university labs and and uh, commercialize them or, or try to find a place for them in the market and so i learned about nanotechnology based surface modification coatings and and it was really important uh to to try to you know be quick and and uh learn quickly and 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 then uh figure out a way to to um translate that uh in a business sense and put it to work so you know again um i think that the entertainment industry served me well in terms of like hey you know not really fake it till you make it but know how to play a role right and and know how to <laughs> even if you don't feel quite as confident as you think you you should um mm-hmm. to to adapt uh or adopt uh, a personality and and kind of per, of a, a new perspective and fill those shoes and then sooner than later you end up uh, actually being that person so that's how i approached it and then after a few years of that i um i you know through relationships i made at, during my time at drywired um i was introduced to the micromobility space by uh one of my you know co-founders uh who has been a co-founder with me in the last couple of companies um but uh 
So we worked together at Emotor, and then we left that and, and founded Clever Mobility, which was um, you know kind of our first company in the in in the shared micromobility space, where we became operators uh, in in markets like Chicago and Oakland and San Jose under the brand Groove. And then earlier this year, we decided to focus our efforts once again on the technology side of of shared micromobility solutions. And founded Drover, which uh, you know has been uh, an interesting journey in and of itself, given that we've started a company in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I think all entrepreneurs love challenge, and this one was the biggest one. <laughs> yeah. So, so what 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 was the uh, idea behind Drover.ai? You know, what was the inspiration? Sure. Well, I think again, having spent time and and uh, you know had really hands-on experience um, in getting a shared micromobility or shared scooter company off the ground and really being hands-on on the operation side, seeing where mm-hmm. all of the inefficiencies were, uh, and being intimately familiar with with all of the pain points, both uh, on the operator side, but as well as as the the public policy or government relations or regulatory compliance, and so. Um, you know, with a deep passion for promoting this type of mobility, as as I, I definitely think that it's a, you know, a, a really important part of the future of, of urban transportation and sustainable urban transportation. Um, I really wanted to try to solve or help uh, better align the interests of the private sector and the public sector uh, on on this new type of mobility because there is some friction in the space, right? I mean, in terms of safety mm-hmm. and regulatory compliance, not breaking rules, right of way management. And so there was a huge opportunity there to try to leverage technology to uh, to, to help those interests better align um, on those fronts, on those pain points, uh, rather than manage user behavior, which is extremely unpredictable and and almost impossible to manage. To try to leverage technology to to enable um, you know better uh, safety, better compliance uh, of of rules, and and therefore make it a better experience overall, and and also at the same time. Um, reduce operational costs. So the ultimate goal is to really ensure the, the long-term viability of, uh, of shared micromobility as, as a transportation solution. Okay. So what, what uh, specific services or product you have uh, uh, at Trooper? Yeah. So Sure. So I think the, the easiest way to describe what we do is that we, we uh, make AI-powered IoT solutions for uh, micromobility fleets. And now, what that means is anytime you deploy a fleet that is free floating in a city um, or a fleet of any kind, really, uh, you have to have it kind of connected to your back end uh, management platform so that you can track where your devices are or your, even if you have manned vehicles, your, where your drivers are, um, understand what the vehicles are doing, the, the status of the vehicles, the battery, et cetera, and then also uh, be able to report kind of trip level information. Um, mm-hmm. through through uh, the, the regulatory channels, through um, what's called the mobility data specification. So anything that's deployed in the wild like that has an IoT module on it. And, mm-hmm. and that in- includes a you know, cellular connection as well as GPS. Uh, but mm-hmm. there are limitations based on, on the kind of current uh, tech stack that is, that is in those, mainly because location services are provided by these off-the-shelf GPS chipsets. And GPS, while adequate in most scenarios, uh, suffers greatly or degrades greatly in uh, urban environments, right? What are known as urban True. canyons. And mm-hmm. so then, you know, all of a sudden you have kind of uh, a problem in terms of locating units, which leads to a bad user experience or um, uh, user interface. 
uh, in locating them, but as well as, as just you can't manage what you can't effectively track. And, mm -hmm. and so while GPS is good at kind of, um, you know, enabling the ability to geofence broad areas like an entire university campus or several city blocks at a time, mm -hmm. it's, it's not the right tool to try to manage behavior in much more finite areas such as you know, a bike lane or a street right next to a sidewalk and, and enabling the ability to control specific vehicle behavior in those very precise locations. And so what Drover does is we use AI uh, and, and basically, uh, you know, a, a much more advanced uh, set of sensors on board. And, and so we use AI and sensor fusion uh, to help our devices better understand kind of location awareness in, in those types of environments. So our module, uh, which is retrofitable onto any existing device, it's kind of a device agnostic, um, out of the box can detect the difference between a bike lane, a sidewalk and a street therefore enabling very precise um, vehicle level, you know, either user notification or even vehicle level control in those areas. And that's all independent of GPS, right? So while we do have GPS, that is not, um, you know, kind of the main element. Uh, the, the main element is, is the ability for our system to um, inference and, and be aware of what it is currently traveling on. So uh, how, how do you sort of position yourself? So it's a software company, hardware company, or a full stack? Or um... Yeah, it's a great question. I think initially, you know, I think most of the IP that we have is not in the hardware, per se, mm -hmm. but uh, in, in the AI and, and neural network, uh, as well as uh, you know, some of the other proprietary sensor fusion that we've developed. Um, but, you know, in order to kind of uh, come to market as quickly as possible, we decided that it would be beneficial to create a, an actual module. And the reason for that is that, you know, almost, as I mentioned before, every fleet that's currently deployed already has some type of IoT module on board. And a lot of those vehicles have, you know, 12 months, maybe even two years left of life on them. So rather than um, only be able to come to market once we have explored, um, integration with vehicle manufacturers in the product you know development cycle which mm -hmm. could be 12 or 18 months out uh, we wanted to offer people something that could be retrofit onto scooters and and therefore our module while it is fully capable of being a, a full stack standalone module um, uh, to, you know if that's the an option it is also mm -hmm. designed to function as a secondary module that communicates uh, with the existing onboard module to to share you know the the advanced kind of telematics that we're able to to uh, to produce oh very interesting so basically you have sort of uh, your interfaces protocols uh, enabled to interface with the other devices hardware plus you definitely provide your own hardware uh, complete full stack yeah Yep, correct. Yeah, and and the way we have it now, and you know, we have kind of flexible options, but we offer mm -hmm. our module, um, you know, for those that, that want to trial it and and uh, you know put out uh, some pilot deployments as a hardware as a service. So we will um, you know, basically effectively lease the module out at a monthly rate uh, with the objective of of uh, uh, helping operator partners win permits that they might not otherwise without such technology but also achieve uh, greater levels of operational efficiency. So hopefully for the amount of money we charge them on a daily mm -hmm. basis, they can, they can save, uh, you know, 10 X uh, or, or five X that, that uh, amount on a daily basis uh, due to the, the efficiencies we can, we can provide. 
so that's very interesting uh so how does it work in terms of the onboarded uh, devices on a scooter for example these are uh, manufacturer build or these are third party or so who are you trying to replace or sort of augment yeah that's a good question um the you know there's a, a whole mix of of kind of hardware uh, relationships and components Mm -hmm. uh, companies like Segway and Okai produce not only the vehicle, but also have their own proprietary IoT module that it essentially can be bundled or comes with the vehicle. Mm -hmm. There are other players in the field that produce only the the IoT module, uh, and and uh, you know as kind of a um, a third party addition. And so, if you were to source your own, if you were out there trying to become an operator, you have the choice of kind of sourcing a vehicle from a smaller manufacturer. Um, and, and then kind of creating your own technology stack, uh, adding a third-party IoT module. And that's where we would come in if, if somebody is kind of looking at this from scratch. Mm -hmm. But uh, in, in the current scenario with a lot of the bigger players, in the, in, you know, they typically have a manufacturing partner if they're not building their own. And in that scenario, we have to work closely with both the operator as well as their vehicle manufacturer to ensure that we can uh, you know, integrate our unit without you know, causing any uh, hiccups on, on the certification of the vehicle or, you know, uh, create uh, any any safety hazards or whatnot. I mean, it's a very light touch integration, but nonetheless, mm -hmm. we have to make sure that we abide by by the vehicle manufacturer's, um, you know, concerns. So uh, uh, that's great, uh, Alex. Yeah. In sort of all the hardware companies, uh, the one thing about that always fascinates me, and I think you must have also through in terms of uh, how do you procure such sort of devices and what's your plan if you plan to scale, right? Uh, because in software, right, it's a zero marginal cost if you want to go to mm -hmm. 100 or a million or whatever number of users. But in hardware, how do you plan to currently, how are you procuring the hardware and versus what are your plans? How do you plan to scale it up? Sure. Uh, so, uh, great question. It is obviously a concern when when uh, bringing hardware to market. We're currently um, set to manufacture here in the U.S. Uh, you know, I think given all, all the constraints and concerns with the pandemic, we wanted to make sure that we had a um, very close relationship with our manufacturing and and even supply chain. Um, and but ultimately, you know, we are this hardware is basically our kind of foot in, in the door and, and uh, an opportunity to prove the value of our technology. And um, beyond that, I think that we're already entering into conversations with those that have seen our product's effectiveness uh, to work with manufacturers uh, to, to basically phase out our hardware uh, element. And, and what I mean by that is that. Again, most of the IP and what we bring to the table is not really our hardware. If a vehicle manufacturer um, you know, equips their IoT module or their vehicle with the necessary kind of uh, minimum system requirements, you know, CPU sensors and, and a camera that we require, then it's just a firmware and, and a SaaS model um, beyond mm. that. So we're not fundamentally a hardware company. I think initially we are. So I think that changes the dynamic and even even in a situation where our, our current hardware costs might be a little bit of a loss leader. Um, uh, we're we're uh, trying for that not to be the case, but um, <laughs> if, if that is the case, then it, our objective is to get to a point where hardware is, is not a, a part of our solution and we just uh, work with people that, that already have minimum system, system requirements. Mm -hmm. So that's a very interesting point you mentioned in terms of the hardware sort of for you is 
more uh like a foot in the door sort of opportunity so i i, I was going through uh drawers linkedin couple of uh, uh news items here and there so uh definitely i was seeing a lot of partnerships which i think you are pushing out into the market to mm-hmm. uh like for example couple of companies which i saw so what has been your strategy or how 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 do you get such opportunities you know uh to sure. drive you know how do you make sure it's a very difficult uh, if i can say you know building partnership i think it, it it's it's a very difficult it's a tricky it's a tricky road uh, so how do you go about building such partnerships yeah great question uh, i think that you're right that is the lifeblood of any new startup um it's, mm. it's really trying to leverage connections or business partnerships um to to multiply um any you know uh, market penetration and and, and hopefully uh enhance your reach and and so that's what we've uh we've tried to do i i, I think uh you know we've been lucky in that both my uh, co-founder christian and myself have been in the micromobility space for uh several years now which i guess qualifies us as veterans in a very young industry <laughs> um and and so a lot of the relationships that we had came from our previous company where you know i for example was in charge of of writing all of the permit uh, applications for clever mobility and so i made uh, some great uh, connections and relationships not only on the city side um, but also with all of our competitors right knowing um, who we were up against and and my counterparts at these other companies so when when it came time to to introduce people to drover there were already a lot of strong relationships in place there wasn't uh, any cold calling and and that was critical and especially in the time of a pandemic where you don't necessarily have maybe industry trade shows or events like that where you can mm. uh, network and meet people that you might not otherwise meet so that that's been really critical um and then you know to to your point about a couple of the partnerships that we have in place already given what our path pilot technology does um you know on the one hand we we work well with with operators to uh to 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 help them comply with regulations give them an edge in a very competitive environment uh, in permitting processes and applications uh help them with operational efficiency but then on the flip side the kind of data that our module is able to collect is is much more uh granular and rich than what is currently being provided. So if you were to take a, a normal IoT module, uh the the type of data and trip level information that you would get is highly dependent on the inaccuracy of the GPS. So you you're able to produce uh what you would call a heat map, right? A trip start, trip end and, and a rough route being taken. And there is value in that, but we can take it a step beyond. And and uh um by that I mean, you know, by knowing whether in the course of that trip your rider is on the sidewalk or the bike lane or the street, you can break that down and and have that granular what infrastructure people are using that's valuable not only to um to the cities themselves but also to the data aggregators that they typically use uh to surface this information for them via dashboards you know the likes of uh you know the partnership that that we were highlighting today for example is with blue systems um which works very closely with cities uh to to present them with a tool that allows them to manage uh monitor and 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 even eventually enforce um compliance with any kind of fleet that comes into a city. So our our module uh is is essentially um a hardware extension um to to really help blue systems maximize uh, the benefit of their platform and and therefore cities you know, having access to that. So that's a great partnership uh, for that. 
So uh, that's a data aggregator. And then on, on the other side, for example, we, we uh, are part of uh, Wunder Mobility, which is a German company, uh, which essentially provides a turnkey white label platform for anybody that wishes to launch a fleet. And so they service uh, over 70 customers globally um, in support of these types of, of uh, mobility fleets, be it a scooter, a bike, even moped, or even car share. They provide the existing tools that that uh, somebody um, would need to launch such a thing. So instead of having create everything from scratch, from uh, you know, be it your vehicle or, or your your uh, software stack and backend management, Wunder is a plug and play, and you just put your branding on there, and you have all of the the necessary elements. So. Uh, again, their reach is far greater than ours. And rather than onboard a whole sales staff and, and BD uh, to go out and, and contact each one of these smaller operators that might be using Wunder's platform, well, now we're integrated through their marketplace and we're an approved vendor so that, you know, let's say one of these operators who who's a much smaller player than some of the big guys uh, will look on Wunder and say, well, hey, you know, how, how do I compete with this type of technology? Well, we're, we're a plug and play you know, we play nicely with Wunder's back end. And, and so we're leveraging their, um, their existing operator base to, to offer our technology. So it's a, it's a win-win. Excellent, I must say. I mean, definitely it's, it's, it's a total mess to manage a BD team and a sales team early on. <laughs> yes. It can, it can become very tricky. So, I mean, uh, so the uh, core of the entire piece of the platform also is data, right? So, how do you manage uh, data security? That's point number one. But the point number two is in terms of who owns the right to the data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good, uh, good questions. So I'm I'm not the technical person. Um, I do know that um, in terms of data storage and privacy compliance, we follow all of uh, GDPR and CCPA uh, regulations mm -hmm. and and use all kind of industry standard encryption. Um, you know, on, on the kind of storage and handling of data. Uh, what, what's important, though, is kind of in this mobility uh, framework, our m module is not, is kind of naturally disassociated from any user information from an operator partner, right? We're, we're communicating only with the vehicle. We don't know, you know, who walks up to the vehicle and rents it. We don't have any idea yeah. who that user is. And so it's kind of an elegant already, you know, um, uh, disassociation that exists. We're just collecting vehicle uh, telematics and, and uh, you know, we're connected to the device ID and, and we know which device it is. And so all of that is, is uh, kind of uh, has very um, uh, low risk of, of uh, potential, you know, personally identifiable information being, being shared. Um, and then uh, in terms of who owns that data, well, given our business model where we're currently essentially leasing the hardware, uh, Drover maintains ownership of, of any data that we collect, but we obviously mm -hmm. um, give rights to the data uh, that we're collecting to our operator partners. And so both of us have access to, to that data as part of our agreement, mm -hmm. but the ownership uh, stays with, uh, with Drover. All right, all right. Uh, interesting. So, uh, just coming back to my, uh, I'm coming back to the partnership piece. So, how, where do you feel, or when do you deem fit in terms of building a sales team? You know, when is the right time in a startup journey to have uh, BD sales team in place? You know, what do you feel when is the right moment for a startup to have, or when you plan to have it? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think, you know, uh, maybe different founders or different companies have slightly different answers to that. I think that maybe if you're mm -hmm. building out a software app or or whatever, you you may feel like you want to have a whole bunch of people, uh, you know, consumer facing product. You have to have like kind of a queue essentially or create demand for your product maybe even before it's ready. But in our case, I think that, you know, first of all, right now we have more than enough uh, on our plate, g given our existing, um, you know, network, and and we're more focused on making sure that we get the product right, and and that it performs and delivers everything that we want it to deliver for our partners. And um, beyond that, I think you know every company will just have to understand and be mindful of any kind of inflection point that is reached, uh, where you know your revenue is starting to grow, um, and and maybe your inbound. Uh, or, or personal connections um, are, have been maxed out and you need to bring on people okay. to, to effectively grow uh, your business at that point. But there, there's really no point on, on our side uh, to growing a sales team until we have a, a really you know, solid um, product that, that is, is uh, you know, out in the field, has proven its worth, and, and our pilot programs with our partners have, have delivered the value that we, uh, that we expect. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. I mean, uh, in terms of uh, finding the product market fit is uh, absolutely crucial uh, before uh, you're looking to scale or building a team. Uh, so, so uh, Alex, tell me a little bit in terms of, as you mentioned earlier, you started uh, Drover in COVID times and being in mobility space, I mean, that is the thing which has been impacted the most, right? People are not traveling much mm -hmm. uh, so how do you how do you have like what has been the current situation or the impact on the business if i can ask in that way uh sure positive or negative yeah yeah that's uh you know again a question we faced many times and, and one that we also had to ask ourselves as we were starting the business um while it is true that COVID has impacted many companies differently and and the travel space in particular uh, i think that mobility or micromobility specifically has really uh, come out kind of on top in 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 a certain way. Um, initially, I think everybody pulled back and didn't really know you know what the situation was was ultimately going to be, and so companies mm. downsized and and I think uh, you know companies maybe that had scaled too fast, right? Some of the bigger players that were blitz scaling. Um, you know, chose or saw that as an opportunity to to maybe shed some um some weight um and and so yeah. you know, unfortunately for the people that were on the receiving end but generally speaking i think that what we immediately saw soon several months after uh you know march is that people those that had to go back to work or that you know essential workers and people that that needed to move about um immediately started favoring micromobility rather than public mm -hmm. transit to the extent that you know they could be outside moving about um, without being in a subway car full of a hundred other people or a bus and so you know micromobility has really seen a tremendous boost uh, both on the consumer side as well as on the shared side you know i think this summer if you were to try to go out and buy a bike in the us or europe you you had a wait list e-bikes have seen growth uh you know through the roof and uh, same thing for, for personal e-scooters, right, on the mm -hmm. on the consumer side. And the micromobility on the shared side has also benefited from this. 
especially to the extent that it works as a as an extension of public transit where you know it can help people complete those those uh, those routes and the other benefit here uh, uh, if if one were to kind of highlight a silver lining mm -hmm. um, is that cities sees many cities sees the opportunity to kind of expand a bike friendly infrastructure so you know a lot of streets implemented this kind of slow street movement which encouraged people to make use of streets right rather than just cede um, the use of streets to cars only uh, then you know cities like Paris I think Paris uh, uh, dedicated over 640 kilometers of new bike lane infrastructure which right. will be permanent mm -hmm. and so so uh, I think ultimately what, what COVID has done is really a, give people um, a, a different look at how they might move themselves about uh, a city, but also give cities a chance to, to maybe reassess how they allocate space uh, to, to their uh, population and, and how those people use that space. So it's, I think, but ultimately going to benefit uh, micromobility in the long run. And if you look at the kind of bigger mega trends, right, I mean, that are, uh, you know, overarching even what a pandemic that might last a few years mm -hmm. is that cities are extremely resilient. And while some people that had the means um, chose to flee cities in in, uh, in, in the West, um, I think that by and large cities have over the millennia been economic drivers. Uh, they, that's where people choose to, to, to congregate because of opportunity, um, you know, access to, to the you know, basic things that people need to live. So I think ultimately uh, the, the trend of urbanization and densification of cities is going to uh, continue as we as po you know, global population grows. And in that context, you know, cars uh, are certainly not the right form factor, whether they're powered on diesel, you know, electricity or, or unicorn tiers, or even if they're autonomous. It, it's just it's a throughput issue. And so I think micromobility has a has a really uh, strong future in, in, uh, in that context. Oh, uh, very well said. I think it's a interesting space to be in for sure. Uh, so, do you do you sort of foresee from uh, as a company entering into from micro mobility to providing sensors or services to uh, other sort of uh, vehicles, cars, trucks, etc., or you feel uh, this is the segment to be in in terms of scooters? Um, cycles etc yeah i think it's less about the form factor but i do mm -hmm. uh, think that our focus is going to remain in micromobility mainly because you know there's no shortage of companies trying to solve um you know autonomous driving level four level five uh there's there's a whole host of of uh, sensor companies full stack options um you know even even new car makers coming to the fore so you know while in that scenario you have um you know, a, a an ability to introduce much higher based on the you know, overall. I think where we sit is is a fundamentally different, um, you know, business proposition. I mean, we have a very very low tolerance for high cost in micro mobility. Mm. You're talking about devices themselves that are only four or five hundred dollars. So you, there is no appetite to add uh, double or to double the price of the vehicle. So I think what we're trying to do here is use very low tech. Uh, to enable the types of you know, sensing and AI capabilities that you might see in, in uh, much more expensive vehicles, leveraging things like LiDAR and millimeter wave and things like that. So I think it's a, it's a much more um, you know, challenging space and, and one where fewer um, people are, are playing right now. And, and uh, 
Uh, so, so that's I think fundamentally where we're going to be for for the foreseeable future. And currently, you are targeting U.S. markets only or international also? Well, we we have partners in uh, both U.S. as well as Europe, um, as well as the Middle East uh, in in um, UAE. Uh, so I think. Uh, you know, it's all going to be a question of how much we can do as a very small team uh, for the time being and in terms of the pilots we can execute properly. But mm -hmm. that's not to say that uh, that very soon thereafter when uh, uh, when I think you know, the regulatory space is going to continue to move in this direction, there will be likely demand from from all over the world. Um, I think actually, you know, one of the more fundamentally interesting questions for me is how do cities manage this type of um, modality moving forward where currently shared systems are subject to regulations, um, fairly strict ones that limit the top speed and, and where these uh, devices can or cannot be used with geofencing and whatnot. And, mm -hmm. and, and they're subject to fines and violations, et cetera, in that context. Whereas as a consumer, you, know, you can buy a scooter online for a few hundred dollars or, or more um, that goes up to 35 miles per hour and that is not regulated the same way. Sure, there are laws in place that say you can't ride on the sidewalk, but you know the kind of accountability and enforcement at the individual level is far uh, more difficult to implement than it is if you have an operator with thousands of vehicles on the fleet uh, in a fleet. And, and so you know I think the general feedback or reaction to scooters being deployed has been one of, uh, you know, ranging from enthusiasm to just disgust in terms of them being all over the city. And I think it'll be interesting to see how regulation reacts when it's not just 10,000 devices in a city with three operators, but there's 100,000 or 300,000, um, just like there are cars, and, and how uh, you, you establish consistency on the regulatory front between consumer-owned and, and shared devices. There, there, in my view, there cannot be a double standard or it's going to it's going to fall apart. I mean that's very true in terms of um, it's it's still at very nascent stage in terms of the regulatory environment. I think globally also people are figuring it out, governments are figuring figuring it out what are the best policies to be put in place uh, to manage uh, data coming from multiple sources for sure. So how so what do you, uh, so what's your take in terms of, uh, so for example, you have, uh, the, so there is GDPR in place uh, in Europe. There are a couple of uh, regulations in place in US also, and many countries are coming up with different, different norms for uh, regulation and et cetera. Do you also feel like it will, micro mobility will be also be heavily regulated if it makes sense, you know, or what, what sort of from regulatory fronts, you know, uh, what could this particular segment looks, look yeah, like? Yeah, I think yeah. Uh, it's evolving, as you, as you mentioned. I think just even establishing um, nomenclature and agreeing on what we call these things are new modalities that come to market. I mean, a, a lot of places are still kind yeah. of using antiquated rules um, that may have been developed maybe even 100 years ago to apply to bicycles. Um, to the current state of electrified micromobility vehicles. And, you know, to the extent that uh, any of these cities might have uh, rules governing electric-powered micromobility, they were developed in the early 2000s in response to the original Segway, 
uh, which which was designed as a to be a, a people mover, right? I mean, uh, a, a EAMD, mm-hmm. uh, electric personal mobility assistive device. Um, I think I got that right. I'm, it's, it's a strange nomenclature, but uh, that being said, you know, I think ultimately <laughs> there's going to have to be some type of vehicle class, and uh, and I think SAE has already jumped into that fray and. Um, you know, they're the regulatory bodies are already acknowledging that that needs to happen so that everybody's on us on a on the same playing field, understanding uh, what the rules are uh, for each category. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely think that that's where it's where it's headed. Um, you know, the irony of it all here is uh, from from a kind of a more macro perspective, you know, we've had over 100 some odd years of car dominated um movement in in um, many western countries mm-hmm. where you know it's while it's illegal to go above a certain speed limit in most areas uh, you can purchase a car that can go five times that speed limit um and and so the hypocrisy <laughs> of, of kind of regulations that are being implemented on these very small uh, potentially far less dangerous devices because they don't weigh uh, several thousand kilos or uh you know cars seem to keep getting bigger and bigger in the U.S. at least. Um, and, and none of those in the U.S. Are, are, are being asked to regulate speeds in, uh, you know, in designated areas where there is a speed limit. Certainly the technology is there to implement that. You know, your car tells you what the speed limit is uh, on the dashboard when, when you're, you know, thanks to the mapping and, and knowledge of, of these things. So I think in Europe, I, I forget which city it is, has already started implementing that where basically from you know, um, at a software level, your car will not be able to exceed the speed limit in, in a downtown area. And I think that that's absolutely, um, that's a no brainer. You know, it's, it's if you want to minimize pedestrian fatalities and, and create safe environments in cities, you can't uh, leave it up to, to human behavior um, if, you know, to, to ensure the best outcome. So, you know, moving forward, I think maybe micromobility is, a, is an opportunity for regulators to kind of quote unquote, get it right. Um, you know, before it gets out of control, and then hopefully, maybe that type of regulation and um, will will trickle up to larger size vehicles, and and they can be held to the same types of standards that are being currently developed for micro mobility. Short of time, so to wrap it up, uh, I, I will ask my favorite question. You know, uh, you have been an entrepreneur. Uh, you you have done a few startups. So, uh, what would you have done or like, let's take the current example, you know, what would you have done differently uh, when you're starting uh, Trover? You know, what were your sort of uh, uh, key takeaways from your previous experience? You know, for this time, you're like, okay, these are the few things I want to do in this particular fashion. You know, these are the things or uh, that's how I see uh, or this is the way I want to try certain stuff. So what's your sort of takeaway in terms of... uh, starting a new company at this point in time? Uh, well, I think that's it's a highly personal question, right? Everybody has a different tolerance for risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, it's funny. Uh, I read somewhere recently that, that you know, the common perception is, is that startup founders are, are mostly in their 20s and, and whatnot because, you know, it's... Um, it's it's minimum uh, responsibilities yeah sure but a higher appetite for risk and all that but that's Mm -hmm. actually not not quite true Uh, i think the majority of of uh 
entrepreneurs, first time entrepreneurs are in their early 40s, early to mid 40s. And the reason for that is that sure, the ones that get the most publicity may come from somewhat wealthy families that, you know, where you have a safety net and you're coming out mm -hmm. of a potentially very good school and, and access to a lot of this, uh, you know, technology facilities, uh, capital, and, and you have the luxury of, of uh, trying certain things and failing and then trying them mm -hmm. again. Whereas, you know, the vast majority of entrepreneurs, you know, be, be it starting a small restaurant or, or whatever, um, can only achieve that luxury, uh, you know, at some point later in life where they have a little bit more maturity, maybe they have uh, experience, uh, mm -hmm. you know, so, so I think that's a really important thing. And that's really kind of been the case for me. I didn't really become an entrepreneur until my, my mid to late 30s. Um, albeit I came from the entertainment industry, which is also extremely volatile and unpredictable. So I was I already had uh, a pretty decent level of comfort with a with unpredictability. And I think that that's what it takes is, is uh, I think you, you need to be as adaptable as possible. And um, that's the, the biggest skill I think in, in, uh, in entrepreneurship uh, for me anyways, is to quickly be able to adapt to, to be a, um, a fast learner and, and be open to learning new things. You can't be set in any particular pattern um, or, or you will, the likelihood you will fail is much greater <laughs> and uh, and it's okay to fail right uh, no yes, I, yes. I certainly wasn't successful um in in the first uh business i mean uh, uh, i think it was the article i i also read in it was in hbr harvard business review where they were sort of they compiled these stats different stats uh, they were they were mm -hmm. saying the average age of founders a successful company of a uh, uh, founders were 45 right so they sort That's of right. compiled this all different data and they were saying what it takes to be successful and they just came up with you know the average age of if the founder is 45 you know they uh, they are much more successful and definitely there are outliers right there are outliers in the industry sure. and as you mentioned uh, it also depends from what background family you come from and what sort of safety yep. net you have in place um, I think it's, it's funny because we're also kind of obsessed with youth, right? I mean, uh, yes. it's, it's uh, there, there's no there's no sixty under sixty in Forbes, you know what I mean? <laughs> 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 um, it's all thirty under thirty, maybe forty under forty, but if you're over forty, like nobody cares about you. It's not a sexy. <laughs> that is so true. I mean, I have met so many people, and whenever tell, okay, I got. 30 under 30 like oh they say oh i missed so the typical comment is like oh i missed 30 under 30 i missed 40 under 40 now uh, 50 under 50 also so i mean i mean that's the way i think sort of media likes to portray you know uh, the glorification or in terms of uh, the young founders you know it it, it gives sure. you a good story i guess i thought i don't know <laughs> yeah well i i would love to read you know i think it's really interesting because Given the longer lifespans that we have, um, mm -hmm. it's pretty common for for most people uh, to have to reinvent themselves several times, and mm -hmm. you know, I call it uh, a, a midlife crisis uh, of necessity. Frankly, I mean, because industries move so quickly, uh, you may find yourself in a in a what you think is going to be your forever career, only to find that that entire industry is is uh, is being revolutionized by something or other, and and then you have to pivot and learn something new and. You know, uh, it's I think that that's that's where my comment about adaptability and not being afraid to take a few steps in a new direction, if that's where you're being pushed, 
um, really pays off because if not, you, you, you get left behind. So I think there are mm -hmm. a lot of people in their midlife that are um, either be, because they're forced to do it or because they're interested in, in trying new things uh, are starting businesses. And it's, uh, it's, it's really cool. Oh, that's a very interesting tangent, Alex. Uh, I always, I have this internal debate, you know, uh, who is at an advantage, a journalist or a specialist, right? There's no clear-cut answer to it. It's all, it's ever-evolving, right, as you mentioned. Uh, yeah. You have to adapt to the situation, I think, yeah. That is the key <laughs> takeaway. Perfect, yeah. perfect, Alex. It was wonderful to have you. Uh, great insight in terms of the segments in micromobility, how it is evolving, uh, what are the challenges, and where are the opportunities for sure. Uh, great, uh, Alex, thank you so much for your time. I think I, I went a little overboard. <laughs> no, yeah, th thank you. I, it's partially my fault. Um, I added a few things at the end there, but thank you for having me, Ashish. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Uh, we will be back with more interesting episodes soon. Stay tuned.